Hi, I'm Alison. I'm from 7pm Kirribilli. Today I'm reading from 2 Samuel chapter 15 verses 7 to 31. It's on page 271. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living at Geshur in Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. The king said to him, go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is the king in Hebron. 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests and went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel the Gilanite, David's counsellor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength and Absalom's following kept on increasing. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answered him, your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses. The king set out with his entire household following him, but he left ten concubines to take care of the palace. So the king set out with all the people following him, and they halted at the edge of the city. All his men marched past him, along with all the Kerathites and Pelathites and all the 600 Gittites who had accompanied him from Gath marched before the king. The king said to Ittai the Gittite, why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with King Absalom. You are a foreigner, an exile from your homeland. You came only yesterday and today, shall I make you wander about with us when I do not know where I am going? Go back and take your people with you. May the Lord show you kindness and faithfulness. But Ittai replied to the king, as surely as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, whether my Lord the king may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. David said to Ittai, go ahead, march on. So Ittai the Gittite marched on with all his men and the families that were with him. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley and all the people moved on toward the wilderness. Zadok was there too and all the Levites who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God and Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Then the king said to Zadok, take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it 
and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Do you understand? Go back to the city with my blessing. Take your son Abiyamaz with you, and also Abiathar's son Jonathan. You and Abiathar return with your two sons. I will wait at the fords in the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar took the ark of God back to Jerusalem and stayed there. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. Now David had been told, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. Well, good evening, 7pm. It's so good to be with you. If you haven't met, my name is Joel, one of the student ministers here. Um, if you haven't seen me, that's because I've been at Macquarie Park this year, but it's good to be back and visiting and seeing you guys. Why don't you pray as we delve into this quite heavy passage this evening? Gracious Lord, we pray that you soften our hearts and our minds to read and hear what you have to say to us and how awful the consequences of sin is, but let this point us back to your son Jesus who has shown us great mercy. In his name we pray. Amen. When dad first came to Christ, one of the biggest obstacles for him was to forgive a man who wronged his mother, my grandma. When dad was seven, people from his own village in Samoa attacked his family uh, they came with weapons they intended to harm and bully and threaten. But Dad found a shelter with Mum in a house um, just down the road, and it seemed like they were out of danger until a man walked in with a, with a gun. But by God's grace, they were, he had ran out of bullets, so he used the gun like a baseball bat and smacked Grandma right in the mouth here, knocking her unconscious and messing up her teeth. Dad and Grandma both survived, but both with scars. I got to know Grandma. She lived here in Sydney and lived a peaceful life before going to glory in 2008. And when I saw her, her missing teeth, I thought it was just a matter of getting old, but it was, there's a story behind that, yeah? For Dad to look at his mum, it was a traumatic reminder. Dad told me that the image of that man's face was ironed into his memory for his whole life. He was carrying that hate and anger with him. He was consumed with the idea, you know, when, when I'm older, when I'm able, when I'm a man, I'm going to get my revenge. But when he met Jesus, this is where the gospel hurt the most. It demanded him to put away his anger. It demanded him to give up his revenge mission and to forgive this man. The gospel spoke a hard word to him. He rebuked him. He said, yes, you've been wronged. Yes, you've sinned. But you cannot have the forgiveness that Jesus offers if you cannot forgive this man. So one of the toughest words my dad had to say was, I 
forgive you. See, holding a grudge and payback is a natural response to those who sinned against us. Yeah, I've never, I can't comprehend this, I've never been wrong to this extent, but I know when I'm watching a taken Liam Neeson movie, I'm pumping my fist when he's showing them a particular set of skills, man. The gospel challenges us to respond to sin with forgiveness and to trust God to bring true justice. And our passages today, this is a sad narrative of how David's sin has unraveled disastrous consequences for his family and the kingdom. It's caused a lot of hurt, a lot of pain for everyone. But it's also a tragic story of what happens when a king doesn't do his job, when a king does nothing when he sees injustice happen and just lets sin spiral out of control. We'll focus on two characters tonight, of course, David, but also his son Absalom. We'll spend the first time in chapter 13, so I invite you to turn your pages there. And then later we'll jump over to 15. Chapter 13 contains some of the most unpleasant verses in the Bible. If you thought David and Bathsheba was bad, this is worse. It's a shocking reality of how depraved the human heart is. But you know what? I'm glad the Bible does not shy away from this. It presents evil Plainly, honestly, but also tragically. Chapter 13, Amnon, David's eldest son, rapes his sister, Tamar. And then um, Absalom murders Amnon. Then Absalom flees to exile, estranged from his family. Toxic relationships all around. And this toxic relationship crescendos in chapter 15 to the point where Absalom is coming for David's throne and also his life. The message is plain, really, here. Sin has disastrous consequences for human lives. Sin has disastrous consequences for human lives. You see, sin never only affects us. It affects people all around us. And we are repulsed by it. We mourn it and we feel the pain. And this text rubs our noses into the devastating effects of sin. And when I was reading this this week, I couldn't help but ask myself, how how can God let such awful things happen? But you know when, when bad things happen in life or in the world, I think we're too quick to point the finger to God. You know, we say, if you really were in control, God, you'd stop suffering, you'd stop evil, you'd stop that. There are two truths that we need to hold in a healthy tension which helps to speak into that question. Number one, yes, God is sovereign and he's in control. But number two, humans are fully responsible for their actions and the evil and the sin they commit. Both are true and we need to hold them in a healthy tension. Romans 1 tells us that part of God's judgment on this world is that they have, he's, given us over, he's given the world over to sin. God says to a world who has rejected him, okay, if that's, if that's what you want, if you don't want me, all right, you go do what you want. And the result is just rampant evil and wickedness. And we get a glimpse of that here in chapter 13 and 15, right? God gives Amnon over to his lustful desires, 
God gave Absalom over to his murderous intent. And God gave Absalom over also to his desire to be king, to take over David's throne and also to kill him. That's human responsibility. But God is also sovereign. God did say to David, he's going to bring calamity over his house because of his sin. His sins might have been taken away, but there are ramifications. 13, uh, chapter 13, verse 31 and 36 shows how it's affected people. Quickly, verse 31, it says, The king stood up, tore his clothes, laid on the ground, all attendants with him. Verse 36, David's sons come running in, wailing loudly. The king too, and all his attendants, just weeping bitterly. Sin brings nothing but tears. Notice it's not just David mourning. It's his whole household. It's his attendants. Sin brings pain and sorrow for everyone around us. And when it comes to the experience of in our world, of the world that we live in today, sin and brokenness is a part of life. We don't have to look far to see how messed up our world is. A friend of mine told me she was volunteering for a pop-up store in Redfern um, to raise awareness for refugees selling pastries at the so-called murder mall. But she said a lot of people that came by were people struggling with life, not just financial hardships, mental illness, financial um, homelessness, drugs. It was a big ask to fork out four bucks for a chocolate croissant. But down the road in Broadway, had another friend working at a high-end retail fashion store, raking in $300,000 a week. Just people walking in, randomly impulse buying, in and out. My friend said, there's something wrong about that. Yes, there is something wrong about that. Our world is messed up and we know it. But it's not just out there yet. It's personal. I'm sure every one of us has experience what it's like to be wronged deeply. We feel the effects of sin and how we know what it's like to be left hurt and broken. Because of this, we long for justice. We long for justice. Yeah, when we read this, we can't help but cry out, okay, what's, what's David going to do about it? Is he going to bring justice for Tamar? Is he going to punish Amnon? His son has fled. Is he going to show mercy and try to bring him back to the fold? Verse 21, seems promising. I'll read it for us. When King David heard all this, he was furious. And that's it. David does nothing, but sits on his hands. How frustrating it is when a king who sees sin happen and doesn't do anything about it. And surely that's part of what Absalom's frustration here. You know, if the king doesn't do anything, can feel like it's only a matter of time until the people would take things into their own hands. That's basically chapter 13. Absalom, he waited two years for the opportunity to strike. Enough time has passed to make it seem like he forgot about it. Um, he fools his family, invites them over to a celebration party, but it was only a cover-up to murder. What Absalom does here is not justice. It's revenge. Revenge doesn't solve anything. It causes more brokenness and spiral of sin. 
I noticed that a lot of movies that I like to watch have a big theme of revenge in them, like your Jason Bournes, uh, your John Wicks, uh, your Takens. Um, but all of them have multiple sequels. You know, there are five Jason Bourne movies, there are four John Wicks, there are three Takens. There would have been a fourth, but Liam Neeson said that would just be bad parenting. He can't lose his daughter a fourth time. You see, these sequels happen because the premise is, once you've, get, once you've gotten your revenge, someone else is coming for your head. There will always be a loose end. The cycle of revenge will keep on going and going. It's not satisfying as you think. I mean, look at the result of Absalom's revenge mission. It just ends in more tears. And Absalom, he's forced to flee the country. He's got a bounty on his head now. Retaliating sin with more sin will only guarantee things to go downhill. But nonetheless, we, we long for justice, yeah? We long for justice. So what do we need? We need a king who can end sin. We need a king who can end sin, which means he can't be passive. But that's the way David is acting here. He's easily acted on by other people. When he hears about Tamar, he's furious and does nothing. When Absalom flees, he mourns, but also does nothing to bring him back. You know, Absalom actually did come back, but it wasn't because of David's decision. His two IC, Joab, had to nudge him. He's like, come on, man, you should do something about your son. We can't afford a king who is passive. Might as well have no king then. You know what? David used to be the best type of king. In chapter 8, verse 15, it says, David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all people. Just and right for all people. I find that amazing because I don't think there's a leader in history that could claim to do that. There's always something they haven't addressed. There's always some people group that is marginalized. Even this, you know, this ideal feels far-fetched even in our so-called lucky country. I mean, this week, we've, we've had strikes happening this week across New South Wales. Our rail workers, our teachers, our health workers are fighting for better working and pay conditions. You see, David was the best type of king, best type of leader, acting just and right for all people. But this perfect kingdom only lasts for what feels like five minutes because of one big flaw. He is tainted by sin. So for a king who can end sin, he can't be passive, but he also can't be tainted by sin. If we look here, sin has affected how David rules. He finds it hard to convict a sex offender because he is one himself. He finds it hard to deal with a murderer because he is one himself. He's passive. He's experienced God's mercy of forgiveness but won't show mercy to Absalom. You know that game whack-a-mole that you kind of find at the arcades or carnivals? When the mole pops up its head, you've got to hammer it, and then next minute two, uh, another two pops up elsewhere, and you've got to hammer that and just keeps them going and going. I feel like that's how human leaders are trying to deal with sin and injustice. It's just a perpetual game of whack-a-mole. As hard as they try, it'll just never go away. They're sinful too, and sin clouds their judgment. So we need a king who's not tainted by sin to put an end to sin. 
to say that is almost to say that the king can't be just human because we're tainted by sin, but then he must be human because humans sin and they must pay for it. Because we're all sinners, we need a king who is merciful. We need a king who is merciful. David might not be the model king. We know that obvious now that he ain't it. But he is a model to respond as a sinner. Let's turn to chapter 15 now. and Let's see how he responds. We're going to quickly examine four encounters. The first two gives hope that David is acting like a king again. And the last two shows his humble response as a sinner, which applies more to us. Verse 14, encounter number one. Seems like David's decisiveness is back. You know, he's assessed uh, the, the disastrous situation. Uh, Absalom's stolen his 200 best men. His top advisor has gone. Um, he's stolen the hearts of Israel. And he makes a call in verse 13. All right, let's get out of here immediately. Let's pack our bags. Let's go. Being forced to flee here is a reminder to David that the ultimate consequence of sin is being exiled from God's city. It's being sent out from his presence. And again, in this chapter, all we see is more tears. Verse 23, as they're fleeing, the whole countryside is weeping. As David crossed the Kidron Valley. Verse 30, David goes up to the Mount of Olives, weeping, his head covered, his barefoot, and all the people with him, head covered, barefoot, weeping. David's exile is a reminder that the worst experience of sin is, consequence of sin is, Separation from God. As he flees, encounter number two, verse 19, he encounters a Gentile man. His name is Ittai. And here we see David wanting to deal kindly and merciful with people again. He tells him, you know, Ittai, I know we've conquered your people, but I'm escaping now. I don't know where I'm going, but feel free to go, feel free to go back. You don't have to follow me. Verse 20, David says, May the Lord show you kindness. And faithfulness. We have hope that David is acting like a king again. He's wanting to do his job. The next two encounters will show that David the sinner is now turning his heart back to God. Encounter number three, verse 25, he instructs his priest to send the ark back to Jerusalem. You see, on top of being exiled and sending the ark back, that's a big call. If you remember, the ark of God was a symbol of God's throne. And this is David. This is all he has left of God. But he says, now nah, send it back. David was humbled here. He was not going to take advantage of God's favor or treat God as some lucky charm to get him out of this situation. But he says, send it back. If God wants me back in Jerusalem, he'll restore me. See, he trusts God with his future here. Encounter number four, 31, verse 31. When he hears that his top advisor... One of his closest friends has betrayed him. David prays. He prays, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. You know, the last time David prayed was all the way back in chapter 12. And if you do, I was trying to do the math in between. Um, it's at least 11 years ago. For more than a decade, David ignored God and took his responsibilities lightly. 
And the fact that he's praying again shows that he's turned a corner, he's learned his lesson. And David's willingness to trust in God here, in God's mercy, is not dependent on his circumstances. In fact, they couldn't be worse. But he acknowledges that his hope, his only hope is in God's mercy to deliver him. This is true repentance. And I think this speaks to a lot to us, yeah? When, when we've been wronged, we, we don't want to go to God. We want to take things in our own hands. Um, when we sin, we sometimes just want to ignore it. We don't want to acknowledge God or run away from him. Maybe take a break from God like David did. But we can't ignore sin and we can't ignore God either. Ignoring sin is like leaving a dead cat to rot in the house. It would just get worse. It needs to be dealt with. And that's where the gospel comes in. The gospel says Jesus has dealt with sin and we can trust him. You know, when God promised David in 2 Samuel 7, one of the most important passages in the Bible, which will come up on the screen, God said to to David regarding the king, I will be his father and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him. This is a glimmer of the gospel. This is God saying to David, I'm going to put my DNA into your dynasty. The king will be a son to God, and God will be a father to the king. And sure, the kings that came after David... They were sons of God imperfectly. They were human, they were infallible, and they died. But don't you see how this points us to Jesus? We know that he is in a very real way the perfect son of God. His God is in his very DNA. See, Jesus is fully human, meaning that he can represent us and pay the consequences of sin. And Jesus is also fully God the one who can't be tainted by sin and has the power to overcome it. Coming to the New Testament in John's Gospel, John intentionally alludes to David's exile experience here in chapter 18, John 18. You know, hours before his death, Jesus also crossed the Kidron Valley into a garden, praying, Jesus walked that same path David did as a rejected king, but it wasn't because of his sin. Instead, he carried with him the consequences of our sin, the sin of the world. And also, unlike David, he didn't flee. He waited there at that garden, knowing full well that a close friend, his treasurer, betrayed him and was coming with an army to take him to his death. Whilst David fled and pled for God's mercy to save him, and God did save him, he restored the throne back to David. But Jesus chose to stay and face the consequences of sin. And as he hung there on that cross in excruciating pain, and in his dying breath, he proclaims to the world, it is finished. The consequences of sin has been dealt with. Nothing more to do, nothing more to add. Let's go home. It's done. We can chuck away that whack-a-mole machine now. Game's over. It's finished. 
This is why my dad can trust that Jesus would deal justly for grandma and that he should forgive this man. This is why we can trust Jesus when we've been wronged and sinned against. We don't respond with sin, but respond with mercy. Trusting that Jesus will make things right on our behalf. Most of all, we're wretched sinners ourselves. More than our need to show mercy to others, we need the mercy of God. We don't want to be dealt with how our sins deserve. But church, the fact that Jesus died, taking on the consequences of our sin, we can be fully assured that we'll be met with his mercy and full forgiveness. Let's give our lives to the King who will make right every single wrong that was committed in this world. Let's give our life to the King who promised us that one day there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, and the consequences of sin will never be felt. Let's look forward to the day when Jesus finally takes his throne to rule the world with justice, righteousness for all people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we mourn and feel the, the pain and the consequences of sin here, but we thank you that this points us more to your son, that what he's done, he's taken on the consequences of sin for us, and we can trust in him for mercy. And then we pray. Amen.